I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Hosea, the book of Hosea. We are going to be in chapters 9, 10, and 11 this morning. Uh, We've been looking at God's scandalous love to his people through the book of Hosea, and this morning we're going to see God's father love, the father's love, how God cares for his children in Hosea 9, 10, and 11. As we walk through uh, this passage together this morning, we're going to see this central truth that God loves his unruly children more than we can imagine. God loves his children more than we can imagine. So we'll read together beginning in Hosea chapter 9, verse 1. Hosea writes, Rejoice not, O Israel, exult not like the peoples, for you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. Threshing floor and wine bat shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail them. This shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. They shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not please him. It shall be like mourners' bread to them. All who eat of it shall be defiled. For their bread shall be for their hunger only. It shall not come to the house of the Lord. What will you do on the day of the appointed festival and on the day of the feast of the Lord? For behold, they're going away from destruction, but Egypt shall gather them, Memphis shall bury them, nettles shall possess their precious things of silver, thorns shall be in their tents. The days of punishment have come, the days of recompense have come, Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. The prophet is the watchman of Ephraim with my God, yet a fowler's snare is on all his ways and hatred in the house of his God. They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. Like grapes in the wilderness I found to Israel, like the first fruit in the fig tree in its first season I saw your father's. But they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird, no birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them until none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I have seen, was like a young palm planted in a meadow. But Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter. Give them, O Lord, what will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I began to hate them. Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations." Well, last Sunday morning, and if you were here last Sunday, you know some of this story already. I had a meeting before church, and so I was about to leave the house just a a couple of minutes after this, and uh, from a couple of rooms over, I heard my name shouted, Joshua. And I know that that tone of voice, it's it's the same tone I hear when someone spies a palmetto bug. Now, if you don't know what a palmetto bug is, uh, those are COUSs, cockroaches of unusual size. And they make particular homes here in the low country. They like uh, coming indoors, especially when it's a little hot outside, and so they, f- they find their way inside. And so I thought, certainly there must be a bug to kill. 
And, uh, but then I heard my name again and said, come now. And so I realized maybe something else was wrong. And I, I went in the room and, and it was in our uh, girl's room. And Grayson was lying on the floor with her head at this point in Liz's lap. And I thought, well, that's unusual. And uh, she said she had passed out. She's kind of gone limp. We thought it was weird, but, you know, I don't know. We just kind of, okay, well, let's calm everyone down and then we'll, we'll keep, keep moving. And so uh, we're going to head downstairs, and, and Grayson, along with uh, Liz and me, we, we start walking toward our stairs, and right at the head of our stairs, she just goes stiff, collapses, and then she's rigid. Her eyes rolled up in the top of her head, and her tongue stuck to the roof of her mouth. And I mean, it was a moment where, as a parent, I mean, it's like, I don't know, if there's a giant beast to fight, you know, I can do that. There's literally nothing I can do. There's something going on here. And I was deathly afraid for what was happening to our daughter. Never happened before. And so, of course, we're immediately uh, praying, crying out to God, and thinking, okay, we don't know what to do. And it's at that point that I uh, reached out to Jake and several other people and said, I don't know what our morning's going to be like, but we may not make it. And, and as you know, long story short, uh, thankfully, we, we got to uh, the doctor and they were able to see her. But the irony is I was supposed to preach this message last Sunday on the Father's love. And God gave me an unbelievable picture of God's love for us as his children. Because I cannot describe to you the terror in my heart at what I thought might be happening to my child. See, I've been hurt. I've been hurt much worse than that. I've been in much more dangerous places than that. I have never once felt for myself that kind of fierce love. It's impossible to put into words. It's impossible to find a way to articulate what you feel in a moment like that for your child. And I was sitting there and I was, I was just imagining the breadth and depth of emotion I'm feeling in this moment. And I'm thinking, this is a drop in the bucket to the love our heavenly father has for us as his children. It's impossible to describe it's, it's why God's word tries, oh, oh, the breadth and the length and the height and the depth to know the love of Christ. It's not something you can comprehend. It's a feeling more powerful than the human heart can feel. And that's how God loves his children. It is just mind-blowing. Now, I was thinking, if you could design, you know, I don't know if you were some sort of genetic scientist, if you could design the perfect father, what would the perfect father look like? And I don't really know what he looks like physically in terms of his characteristics, but at some level, it would look something like a father who never disappoints. And you know, even the best earthly father can't hope to be that dad, because your kids grow and then they learn dad's not perfect, or maybe they learn it real early in life, they don't have to figure it out, because they can see. But then on the flip side, I also think a father who not only doesn't disappoint me, but who knows the worst things about me, and yet is somehow not disappointed in me either. And that, brothers and sisters, is the picture we have in God's word of our father, someone who never disappoints, Someone who knows the worst things about you in a way that you yourself cannot know them about yourself and yet still loves you. 
God is an unbelievable father who loves his children unlike any other father. Well, let's pick up now in Hosea chapter 10. We'll read chapter 10 together. The Lord goes on, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. For now they will say, we have no king. We do not fear the Lord. And a king, what could he do for us? They utter mere words. With empty oaths they make covenants. So judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. The inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf of beth Its people mourn for it, and so do its idolatrous priests, those who rejoiced over it and over its glory, for it has departed from them. The king itself shall be carried to Assyria as tribute to the great king. Ephraim shall be put to shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. The high places of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars. They shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. From the days of Gibeah you have sinned, O Israel. There they have continued. Shall not the war against the unjust overtake them in Gibeah? When I please, I will discipline them, and the nations shall be gathered against them when they are bound up for their double iniquity. Ephraim was trained like a calf that loved to thresh, and I spared her fair neck, but I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow. Jacob must harrow for himself. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. You have plowed iniquity. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. Therefore, the tumult of war shall rise among your people, and all your fortresses shall be destroyed, as Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle. Mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Thus shall it be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. Well, if you're like me, you just heard what I said about God's love, and you're looking at the imagery here, and you're thinking, there's a big disconnect. Well, one thing about God is he doesn't miss a trick. What does God know? And we see here that God knows all our sin. Judges chapter 19, it's a very dark day in the nation of Israel. A man, a Levite, is traveling through Israel. He's traveling with a female companion. They come to a town called Gibeah. When they arrive in that town, they don't have a place to stay, and a man quickly invites them into their house, and he says, it's not safe to stay here. You need to stay here and be protected. Well, when the men of that city hear that there's this this traveler and his companion there with them, they begin beating on the door of the house, demanding that this man come out to them. They want to use and abuse this man. This man apparently doesn't have good character himself, and so like any cowardly man, he sends actually his female companion out. And by the next morning, the the men of the village are so wicked, they've used and abused and actually killed his companion. Well, when word of this gets out to the rest of Israel, it causes a great civil war. It's a dark day in Israel, and this all happens in Gibeah. So it's no accident 
that the Lord says in Hosea 9, verse 9, they have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. Saying Gibeah is a little bit like saying Columbine or Mother Emmanuel, because people know that. Now, how does God deal with such wicked people? Verse 9 goes on, he will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. You see, God knows our sins. He can list them better than we can. Now, Israel is a largely agricultural society. Our society is kind of post-industrial, but at this time, it was largely a farming culture. So God's Word often uses farming metaphors to help us understand uh, what He's saying. In Hosea 10.13, the Lord says, you have plowed iniquity and reaped injustice. Or as Hosea put it in our chapter a couple of weeks ago, you have sown the wind, you will reap the whirlwind. Now, Israel is situated strategically uh, in the Middle East, and particularly in this era. It's really an intersection, because to the south and west, you have the Egyptian empire or the Egyptian kingdom, depending on the era. And to the north and the east, you have the Syrian, Assyrian, and Babylonian empires. You've got Israel right at the intersection in between. And so over time, Israel is just kind of compressed between uh, bigger neighbors. There are bullies on the block, and they live in the house in the middle of the block, and that's where all the fights happen. So people come in, they want this land. It's basically a bridge between two worlds. So up to this point, the Lord has blessed Israel with protection and prosperity from these bigger, more powerful neighbors. But they've pursued sin so long, they're about to reap the crushing pressure of injustice. They're going to be kicked around by the bigger kids. And it's not as if God hasn't given them chance after chance. Hosea 11 verse 2, the more they were called, the more they went away. Hosea 11.5, they have refused to return to me. Hosea 11.7, my people are bent on turning away from me. The only disciplined commitment the Israelites have is a commitment to sinning. And soberingly, no sin will go unpunished. He will remember their iniquity. Now, sometimes uh, this sin is egregious. It's easy to see. We know from Hosea that the Israelites are guilty of literal and spiritual adultery. But other times, it's a sin with a smile. It's a sin with a veneer of respectability. Hosea eleven twelve, Ephraim has surrounded me with lies, the house of Israel with deceit. Do you remember the model prayer for Jesus' disciples? Matthew chapter 6. Uh, Jesus is in the midst of what we know as the Sermon on the Mount, and the, the, the disciples ask Jesus to teach them to pray. And how does Jesus teach them? He teaches them what we know as the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. And, do you remember the next part? Forgive us our trespasses. Jesus taught the importance of confessing our sins because Jesus knows we're sinners. It wasn't any secret in Israel's day. It wasn't any secret in Jesus' day. It's not any secret in our day. Is confession a regular part of your life with Jesus? It should be. Jesus taught us to pray this way, forgive us our sins. You see, the best understanding of God's grace comes to those who have a healthy understanding of their sin. 
because grace is undeserved. Now, there's a version of Christianity, really it's a pseudo-Christianity, that glances out at the world around us and spends its time thanking God that we're not like that. God, thank you that we're not like those people. But do you remember the story in uh, Luke chapter 18? There's a story about another couple of prayers. Uh, Jesus tells a parable about two men in the temple praying. One man, dressed very nicely, well-to-do, stands by himself because he doesn't want to be associated with anyone else there. And he stands, he lifts his eyes to heaven, and what does he pray? He prays a prayer of thanks to God. But what he thanks God is he says, thank you, God, that I'm not like all these other people. And he even points out the other man there that I'm not like that publican, that sinner over there. In that same moment in the temple, there's another man praying, apparently by himself. But he stands by himself because he's so humble before the Lord because of his sin. He beats his chest and he prays for mercy, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you that that man, not that man, left there justified in God's eyes. We don't always know why Jesus tells a parable. But he tells us this time why he told a parable. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Do you know your sin? God does. And because God is holy and just, he can't ignore our sin. He must judge it. And God judges like a judge that doesn't miss a trick. You don't sneak anything by him. It's 1984. The second blockbuster in a series of three blockbuster Indiana Jones films comes out. Now, I was three years old, so I don't remember when it came out, but I remember seeing this when I was a kid. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Now, one of the most sobering scenes in this video, Indiana Jones and his companions, they somehow end up in the middle of India in this village. And they enter this village and you can tell right away this is a depressed village. Economically, people are sad. But the most sobering scene of all, and it's what Indiana and his companions realize, is that there are no children. You see, the removal of children is a removal of God's blessing. Children are a sign of God's blessing. A church without kids is a church doomed to die. A nation without children is a nation doomed to perish. So when the Lord says in Hosea 9, verses 11 and 12, no birth, no pregnancy, no conception, even if they bring up children, I will bereave them until none is left. It's the harshest sort of curse. So imagine with me the last six months haven't happened. It's pre-COVID days. And I'm walking into a retirement center to visit someone. Now, I assume, and most people are kind and welcoming to me, I assume if I show up on a visit like that, that people, are at least, they act like they're happy to see me. But if I bring with me one of my smaller companions, one of the smaller members of our household, one child there might say nothing, do nothing. The presence of that child, they walk into a retirement center dining room. Who's the celebrity in that room? It's the child. Because just the presence of that child brings joy and energy and life without even trying. That child can do so much. I could, I could be the best orator and say the most encouraging things in the world that would never encourage those people like the presence 
of a child. So God judges his people by taking away their future. No children, no future. But he doesn't stop there in Hosea 9.15. He will take away their access to God. Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. And it gets worse. He takes away their home. Hosea 9.17, they shall be wanderers among the nations. As Israel continues to pursue sin, ultimately the Lord will take away their freedom. Hosea 10.11, I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Hosea 9.10 sums it up this way. They become detestable like the thing that they loved. Your future, your access to God, your home, your freedom, all gone. Well, in that moment, when it's all taken away, what do you have left? Yourself. And in that moment, you find yourself detestable, like the thing you loved. Have you ever had this experience? Now, hang, hang with me here for a minute. It's Thanksgiving. You've got all your favorite foods laid out. You've gone through once, reevaluated, readjusted, maybe gone through a second time, and you're sitting there, and you're debating. And you decide, it's Thanksgiving, it comes once a year, I'm going for it. And so you dive back in a third time, and it's halfway through that third plate when you realize you overshot the mark. And you're sitting there, and the food that a moment before looked so enticing suddenly becomes detestable. What you once loved, you now loathe because you've consumed too much of it. So you shove it on down, but by the end, you hate the food and you hate yourself because of how you feel. But maybe for you, it's not the food you crave. It's the dark draw in your heart to that sin. You crave one more look. So you find yourself by yourself, and when you're by yourself, you give in to that urge. You walk down a road only to loathe yourself at the end of that road. Or you become so consumed with what people think of you, how you look, that you eat, you purge immediately after eating, because it feels so necessary in that moment, but after purging, you loathe yourself for doing the same thing again. You see, self-loathing is a different form of self-love, but it's a terrible feeling. What's worth worse than loathing yourself? But ironically, it's also a gift from God. Because it's a picture of what it means to find yourself on the outside looking in. It's, it's, it's a picture of what it means in Matthew 7 to find yourself standing before God, Lord, Lord, don't you know me? And him saying to you, depart from me, I don't know you. Because if there's anything worse than self-rejection, it's God's rejection. And this is why God's word pictures our response to his judgment as weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth. God hates our sin, and his righteous character requires that he always responds to it with justice. So this is why, so 
We just read chapters 9 and 10. It's, it's, it's sin, it's judgment, and this is why chapter 11 feels impossible. Let's pick up our Bibles and read in Hosea 11, verse 1. Think of how God describes Israel, and then see what he says next. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they didn't know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who, ca- who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning judgment. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man. The Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit, but Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria, and oil is carried to Egypt. So how is it that God loves? God loves like the best father. After the Israelites left Egypt, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Now imagine with me this morning that we're not sitting here, but you're a 14-year-old Israelite boy. And you've known nothing except this wilderness wandering. You're born 10 years into it. You got, a, a, you got 16 years left to just wander. So you have tried manna in every form possible. Broiled, boiled, fried. I mean, you've had manna, manna, manna. You can't handle any more. And you're wandering around a place there's nothing to eat other than manna. And then one day you spy off in the distance, and you're not sure because it could be a mirage, but you spy something, you begin walking toward it. It's a little crevice and you walk up, and in this crevice, you find a grapevine. And you find something you've never tasted in your life, and you pluck from this vine a juicy red grape. You plunge it in your mouth, and in that moment, you bite down, and the flavors begin running through your mouth, and ding, 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 sending all sorts of sensory signals to your mind that you've never experienced before. And in that moment, you have joy and refreshment and flavors you've never imagined. That is precisely the comparison that we find in Hosea 9, verse 10. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. The Lord describes his finding of Israel as the rarest and most precious of gifts. Israel didn't go seeking God. From the beginning, from the very beginning, God has always sought his people. He found pagan Abraham and Ur of the Chaldees and called him out. He found Moses in a wilderness and called him to lead his people out of Israel. He found David in a field tending sheep and called him to be king over his people. 
He called Joshua to lead his people into the promised land. And he went out and he found some disciples by a boat. And he said, come, follow me. As much as the history of the nation of Israel is of God's pursuing love, at the same time, it's a record of the people's failure. Hosea 9 verse 10 continues, they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame. In Numbers 25, the Lord is calling his people, and before they even enter the land, they worship gods at Baal Peor. We're the same way, in our own way. We will make a god out of almost anything. I mean, imagine with me this morning uh, that we announce we got a program we're going to put on. It's got bells, it's got whistles, it's got choir, it's got kids, it's got outfits, it's got programs. What happens? Everybody shows up. Maybe everybody and their grandparents. But imagine instead we said we're going to have a prayer meeting. We're going to call God's people to assemble to intercede to the Lord. Same room. Pretty empty. Probably have a faithful, might call it remnant, that shows to pray. Because we're much better at being entertained and calling it worship, then we are in offering a sacrifice of worship to the Lord. But we're like this in our personal lives too, aren't we? Maybe you've had this experience. Stop to pray. If, if you make time to pray, you stop to pray, and then you're like, you know what? I've got some paint I need to watch dry. And that sounds more exciting to me right now than prayer. Or I haven't called my mother-in-law in a while. I might need to make a phone call instead of talk to the Lord. But what does Jesus say? You have not because you ask not. And we pray not because we love ourselves and our purposes more than God and his purposes. And then even when we pray, our prayers even can reveal our idols. And what do we tend to ask for? Health, protection, prosperity, our needs. And that's fine even good. We're to pray for daily bread. But take some time and review the prayers that we find in Scripture. You will find that the prayers in God's Word are far more focused on God's redemptive purposes than on our needs. Our prayers often reveal our idols. So when you pray, if you pray, Do you pray according to God's purposes? Yet in spite of all of this, God loves us passionately and remarkably. Have you ever seen this baby, the baby that only a mother could love? You see the baby and you're not sure what to say. You're like, that's some baby. Because it's so ugly, only a mom could love that baby. And Israel's that baby. Israel's the ugly, ugly baby. Hosea 11.1, when Israel was a child, I loved him. Well, how do you love a child? You feed him. You protect him. You help him grow. You, you help him learn to walk. Hosea 11, 3 and 4. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by our arms, but they didn't know that I healed them. One of our kids was a little slow on the uptake. They were very content, just like happy to sit and be carried everywhere. And we we're like, we got to get this kid moving. And I can remember distinctly uh, pictures in our house of a trail of Cheerios placed on the floor. And that child will kind of drag itself along and grab one Cheerio. And that, that's how that child learned to move, crawl. Eventually, it's time to learn to walk. And the child laid back about learning to walk, too. 
And I can remember walking around the house with a blanket under the child's arms, trying to teach the child to move its own feet. It wasn't motivated. And that's the picture here. The Lord's got the blanket under our arms. Look at Hosea 11.4. I led them with cords of kindness. It's like that receiving blanket under our arms with bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. I bent down to them and fed them. I love the way English pastor Henry Light's 1834 hymn puts it. Queen Elizabeth II, the reigning queen of England who's been around forever, she had this sung at her wedding as a processional. Father-like, he tends and spares us well. Our feeble frame he knows in his hands he gently bears us. And he rescues us from all our foes. And the picture we have in Hosea 11, 7 through 9 is just remarkable. Verse 7, my people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. Now, parents, I know you've never had this experience, but you've heard of other parents having this experience. Imagine your kids are driving you crazy. You're getting exasperated with your child. And it's the same thing, same thing, same thing, name, 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 need, 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 want, want, want. And and finally, you're at a point where you're like, I have had it. But then you're like, that's my kid. You might walk away from my kids if they drive you that crazy, but you won't walk away from yours because that's your kid. And our father, like that parent, turns and he remembers his love. The people are exasperating. They are bent on turning away, but the Lord responds in verses 8 and 9, how can I give you up? How can I hand you over? And then he's struck at the thought of losing his children. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. God's compassion so motivates him that he chooses love over and over and over again. Verse 9, I will not execute my burning anger, for I am God and not a man. The implication is, if God were like us, and if our kids were as bad to us as we are to God, he'd just go ahead and wipe us out. But praise God, his character is not like ours. We deserve wrath Through Christ, God gives mercy. We earn death. Through Christ, God gives life. We sow the wind, and through Christ, we reap eternal peace. I mean, listen to the way that Lamentations 3 puts it. Though the Lord cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not afflict from his heart. Early American pastor Jonathan Edward comments on this passage, Hosea 11. He says, God has no pleasure in the destruction or calamity of people. He is a God that delights in mercy. Judgment is his strange work. All right, let's see if we can follow, follow this to tease this out a little bit. God's righteous character requires that he deals with sin, but his heart delights in showing mercy. If you're a parent, you know this is true. What makes you happy as a parent? Blessing your kids doing something that, make, that makes your kids happy, doing anything that brings them joy and excitement. What grieves you as a parent? Disciplining your children, causing them grief, causing them pain or discomfort. You do it sometimes out of love for that child, but that's not what gets you jazzed in the morning. You like making your kids happy, and kids, you may not believe it, but it's true. Like when mom or dad says, this hurts me more than it hurts you, you don't understand it, but one day you will, it is true. It makes mom and dad happy making you happy. 
Parents love nothing more than having happy children. God is the same way. God doesn't afflict from his heart, but he shows compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. What is the abundance of God's love? God's love endures forever, Psalm 136. God's love is near to the brokenhearted, Psalm 34, 18. God's love is higher than the skies above the earth, Psalm 103, verse 11. God's love delights in his children. He rejoices over us with singing, Zephaniah 3, 17. God loves sinners, Romans 5, 8. God's love is more powerful than death, life, angels, rulers, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, anything in all creation, Romans 8, 38, and 39. God's love is knowable, yet beyond our comprehension, Ephesians 3, 19. This is why Paul says, pray that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that is beyond our knowledge. Because God loves this way, he provides something humanly impossible. The big metaphor, picture in Hosea is husband, wife, wife leaves. But today's passage focuses on God's love as a father. Israel is a rebellious child. So how does God deal with wayward children? Hosea 11.1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. God is incomprehensible, yet personally knowable. He's a judge and a father. So how must God respond to our sin? He can't just pretend it doesn't happen. Now, now think about it this way. It's not righteous to pretend that a crime hasn't happened. Imagine that you have a young child, and there's a man who assaults and harms your child. And you go to court the day that man stands in court, and the judge says, no big deal, free to leave. What does your heart know? That's not right. Justice must be done. God can't overlook our sin because that's not right. God must deal with our sin. So where do God's justice and his love intersect? They intersect in Hosea 11.1. 1, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now on an initial level, he's talking about Israel coming from Egypt. But Matthew chapter 2 verse 15 tells us the same thing is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Jesus is the truer and greater Israel. Jesus is the truer and greater Son of God. God sent His Son, Jesus, to make a way for all of God's other sons and daughters to come to Him. He must deal with our sin. He's a just judge, but He dearly loves His children. God loved the world and sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. This is God's plan from eternity past, in love to call a people from every tribe, language, tongue, nation to be his people. So how do we respond to God's love? Repentance and faith. Hosea 10 verse 12, break up your fallow ground. It is time to seek the Lord. We respond to God's love and repentance and faith. Break up the hard, the fallow ground of your heart. Repent. Seek the Lord faith. Would you turn from the empty, fallow ground of your sin and seek the Lord while he may be found? If you believe the good news that God is the creator of all things, the just judge who makes sure that all is right, 
In senses that we are not right, and into this gap sent His Son, Jesus, to bear the penalty for our sin. Would you turn from your sin and trust Christ? You can be God's child. God will love you like this. Now, some of our parents have just walked through the very situation I'm about to describe. You have devoted your entire life, last couple decades, 18 years, to caring for a child, and then you just ship that child off to school. And in that moment, a piece of your heart that you could never replace walked out the door, and you know that child will never sense until maybe 25 years from now what you just felt. And there's a part of you that will never feel whole because your children have left. And you know that's good and right because you, you don't raise them to stay. You, you raise them to leave the nest. You know you're doing your, your job right when they're ready to fly, even if they you know, kind of break a wing on the, on the way out. Like you, 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 li- you raise your children, you rear them to leave. But when they leave, that separation, the heartache, the grief is something like what I felt last Sunday morning. It's a feeling of like, how can I feel this strongly about something and willingly let it go? Maybe even push it out. Brothers and sisters, that emotion, that feeling is a small picture of God's love for you. Hosea 11, 8 and 9, the Lord says, how can I give you up? How can I hand you over? God loves his children more than we can imagine. God is no distant God. God is the parent whose heart is torn when his children are grieved. God is the parent whose heart is filled with compassion when his child falls down. God is the God whose heart is ripped asunder when his children walk away. But unlike us, he never gives us up. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is our Father. Let's take a moment now and respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally, and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now.